You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric here. Glad to be joined by a 2018 Columbus fellow. Brooke Wodinski is here. Talk a little bit about upcoming convention and Spark Talks and all the things happening in Ohio. So thanks for listening. Let's get to it. I feel like I should ask you about the honeymoon. We were talking about that before we started. Where did you go and when did you get back? Um, I just got back this weekend and uh, my fiance, well, weird, husband and I went to uh, Tulum, Mexico. And he's actually a NLC Columbus grad as of this weekend as well. So now it's it's fully in the family. Yeah, I like NLC couples. You know, having been around NLC LA for so long, it was always my dream that two strangers would meet in the same fellows class and get married. We got close. We had a 14 and a 15 fellow get engaged, but uh, no stranger love yet. So that's still hopefully coming down the road sometime. New benchmark. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, listen, tell folks a little bit about what you got cooking for convention when we meet up in Iowa in, in a couple of weeks here. Yeah, so I am really, really excited. I'm pretty fortunate to have been chosen as a, a Spark Tote Talk speaker. So um, there's, I believe, 20 or so of us who are going to be speaking at convention doing five-minute talks about something we're passionate about that we feel is something that needs to be said and given some, some light to. Um, my focus is on women's leadership and and how we've kind of seen it evolve, particularly in the candidate uh, space from the 90s to today and how we're seeing, you know, a ton for all intents and purposes, a ton of women running in the presidential and obviously a very successful 2018 cycle and kind of analyzing how people are receiving women and their their personalities and their campaign tactics and how we've seen that evolve dramatically um, since kind of the nineties, which is, you know, obviously I'm a millennial. So um, that's the only standpoint I have is, is my own lifespan, but just kind of talking through all of that and really hitting on the power of authenticity and how that was not a value we held as a society around um, elected officials in the past and how it's becoming kind of the key currency for us uh as we look at 2020 and definitely what we saw work really well in 2018, particularly for women. One of the things I'm always curious about with authenticity is because it is something we definitely value. I think you're totally right. It also is a factor that consultants are aware of too is important. So, you know, how do you, I feel like there's lots of candidates being told to be authentic, which is a misnomer in and of itself. So like, how do you, right. how do you avoid being, uh, fake authentic when you're really trying to be authentic. Yeah, I think uh, that is the cookie that is crumbling before us. Um, I am a communications and messaging consultant for candidates, so you're you're speaking right to the heart of either the problem or the solution. Um, but I think a lot of people are in politics, in particular, we're an industry that simply finds something that works and then repeats, as opposed to trying to be innovative every cycle. Uh, We don't like risk. We like to win, right? So we see oftentimes somebody does something, we see that it works and we repeat trying to cookie cut one candidate into the other. And that's where you have this really big chasm of inauthenticity because AOC might go and do Instagram live and do it really well. and, And Beto might do it, but that doesn't mean Kamala doing uh, live videos, sweaty and hot like Beto plays in the same realm. And I think that that only plays more into, you know, 
the the double standards that women face in particularly digital and how we represent ourselves casually uh, in the candidate space. I think there's just different rules, even if the game is authenticity, or at least part of the game is authenticity. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can get away with going live while at the dentist. Not that that works well for him either, but um, you know, there's different standards. So I think as we look at that, it's it's just a matter of how do we really hone in on what's truly authentic versus how do we create the perception of authentic and also what's authentic and works and what's authentic and is off-putting. Um, and that obviously depends a lot on the demographic you're working to persuade or uh, keep on your side. And I feel like a cousin of authenticity is electability as a term, as a phrase. How do you poke holes in people who might try to convince you of something you don't necessarily believe in based on, on based on an electability argument? I don't know if I have a great answer for that, to be honest. Um, I, I just actually came from a digital conference this past Wednesday, and we talked a lot about uh, how authenticity is often finding what's unique about you and showcasing that. And the other side of that coin is what is your electorate? So if you're running nationally, if you're running, you know, on city council, um, if you're different from your demographic that you hope to represent, does that help or hurt you? Uh, I think that that's kind of a challenge we're grappling with a lot and we don't know how that really plays out. I think there's a lot of complication and nuance and intersectionality there that uh, is yet to be honed in on because truly authenticity was not something we wanted to see in our candidates until very, very recently. It's uh, kind of the unknown. Um, if we look at, you know, the 90s politician, it was all about hiding your flaws. And now we have just kind of people jumping out in front of the gates at, or out of the gates with with their flaws so that they can move on with all their good parts. Um, you know, we saw that with Obama a little bit when he announced like, yes, I've done drugs. Let's move on. This isn't going to be my campaign. Um, but that ne wasn't necessarily the same environment that we're seeing in 18 and we'll certainly see in, as we progress into 2020. Yeah, there's so few, if there's any at all, takeaways that are positive from a Trump presidency and a Trump candidacy. But one would hope that everyone feels like they should run. And there are many things that you can overcome in terms of shortcomings or skeletons or even active criminal behavior, for better or worse. Um, you know, I do hope people sort of retire this idea of, of who should run based on what you've done in your past. Um, he's proven that, right? If you, I mean, he in some ways is the most authentic candidate to run in a really, really long time. He's just authentically awful, but he's mm -hmm. not shy about any of the uh, shortcomings he has. And that's who he is. And there's no, there's no other gear. There's no subterfuge really. Uh, so yeah, so I hope people can take some positive lessons from that and frame it into outcomes that are more beneficial to all of the country rather than, than what we're, we're actually seeing now. May I ask you this? When you think about authenticity and electability and those things too, you know, a lot of politicians struggle because they take the temperature of a issue rather than like set the thermostat on issue and, and have people come to where they are. When you think of like AOC or even Elizabeth Warren being able to uh, get us talking about the Green New Deal or get us talking about canceling college debt and these kind of things, why do you feel like they've been successful getting us to think and discuss and debate issues that other politicians haven't? I think two very impactful strategies 
that I see both of them doing in very different ways is the the typical model, at least in democratic politics, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, is we poll and then we talk about what we know that we want people to hear us talk about. <laughs> and there's uh, not that I endorse Mad Men by any means, but there's an episode in Mad Men where they're kind of talking about how the polling didn't come out and people didn't want to buy what they were trying to sell. And one of the characters says, that's because I haven't told them they want it yet. Hmm. And I think that that's like a very important thing to think about is what is our leadership? Is it leading from behind and just simply giving the people what they want? Or are we framing what matters and making that message resonate? And we see that absolutely with Elizabeth Warren and all of her policies. I mean, you know, I'm not choosing a side on this podcast, but like she's definitely got the most incredible platform of policies and she's telling us what's important and we're learning from her. We don't typically learn from candidates. Um, and we're seeing that also with AOC. That's like the second point is like, I don't know if we're necessarily learning from AOC, but we're getting passionate about what she's passionate about, despite the fact that it was wildly unpopular and still is in a lot of spaces. But it's now like a topic of discussion. Like, when have we ever seen climate really take center stage? Um, and that's sheerly because she's speaking from her values. So your question kind of spoke a lot about issues, but I think it's rooted in these people are focused on their values and they're leading despite what people think. And in doing so, people are thinking about it and agreeing with them because it's a topic that people are fairly uneducated about and fairly uh, unpassionate about, if that's a word, um, until you know, it gets brought into our minds and we realize how critical these pieces are, what Glass-Steagall does and or did and what our environment really is and how many years we have left before things really start to fall apart. So I, I think those two things, education and passion, are what makes uh, a leader a legend and not just somebody who's going to be talking about what they need to talk about in order to get a vote. Yeah, that's well said. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about life in Ohio and a little bit more about NLC convention coming up. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. Yeah, so for folks out here in the very liberal, progressive blue state of California, you know, we watch election returns and we're always hand-wringing over Ohio. What should we know about Ohio that we are probably misperceiving? Uh, well, I live in a very blue bubble of Ohio. I'm, I'm actually from San Diego originally. Uh, I was in Daryl Ice's district oh, for wow. most of my life. <laughs> um, and I live in Franklin County, which is uh, where Columbus is. And Columbus is the capital of Ohio. And it tends to be very, very, very blue. Uh, you know, we have these other blue havens uh, of Cleveland and a little bit in Dayton as well. But I think overall, we're just seeing how much gerrymandering has destroyed our state. When I moved here uh, almost 10 years ago, um, it was absolutely battleground. I was working at the Ohio Democratic Party as senior staff during 2012, and the amount of sway we had, I remember writing emails to MSNBC and 20 minutes later seeing it on national TV, like they cared about Ohio, and it was absolutely considered a swing state. And because of how well the Republicans have gerrymandered 
at all levels in this state, we're seeing just like, I remember us thinking like, oh, like we're going to, we can't ever be like Kansas. And now we're seeing like Kansas be more progressive with their abortion bills and and stuff like that. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just like absolutely mind boggling to go from what's perceived as a very purple state to just wondering how do we even have a chance when the system itself is flawed? Um, California is just, even though, you know, you blue fights against blue predominantly, um, just the system itself has good bones. Uh, there's a lot of pieces and parts of California's electoral system that uh, is meant to speak about democracy, lowercase d, and we're just seeing Ohio really struggle with some of these systemic issues. Um, we are actually a very, very purple state. If you look voter for voter, um, it's just that our districts are completely annihilated and uh, we're one of the worst states in the country for gerrymandering. And that affects honestly, like everything, even if you're talking about a township city council, it's, it's pretty nuts to see just how much the system is, is failing us. And then last thing, when you think about some of the newer chapters that will start in the state, there's been a launch in the last couple of weeks of, of Dayton and Southwest Ohio in general. Like, what would you want those chapters to focus on that might be a little bit different than what Columbus focused on? Um, just building up, like, the human potential. Uh, Dayton is one of my favorite places. Uh, I actually am very good friends with the mayor there. And she was a young Democrat and she, she's, you know, been a part of the system for a long time. We worked together in 2012 and there's just like any rural area, not that Dayton's rural, but it's surrounded by rural areas. Um, there's just like a lack of people staying and a lack of developing that youthful talent because there's so few positions available. So it's probably the most common narrative you hear anywhere is like make room for the young people and choose to invest in us. Uh, But I think that's really important because as we look at who are our statewide uh, candidates, uh, we have a really, really weak bench of, of qualified candidates because the gerrymandering, but also, you know, there's just not a lot of opportunity for young people to step up and, uh, I think that's what makes NLC so powerful is our ability to, even if there's not a position available uh, for somebody to run, or maybe there's not a huge venture capital space for them to start their own business um, or innovate, we are a vacuum of of places or a, a vacuum of a community that can really help us bolster one another and learn from one another. And I think that's my goal for not only our Southwest chapter that just launched, but every NLC chapter is regardless of the structure in which we live in, we're creating a space that uh, lifts each other up um, in the true Wellstone way. So <laughs> I think that's my hope. And, you know, they we just have some incredible people that are launching that chapter. And between Dayton and Cincinnati, uh, we're going to see uh us be able to really identify who are these key leaders and who should we be watching and who should we be investing in and almost telling our elected officials and communities and progressive spaces, this person is worth noticing because we've provided them a platform to be noticed. And I think that that's something that's really lacking across our state. Yeah. Well, well, listen, good luck to all of y'all there. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks in Iowa. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Zag. You can catch all past episodes and there's a bunch, about 130 or so are up in all the places you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google, 
SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places. Check them out. They're short and sweet. Until next time, we'll catch you soon. Mm-hmm.